0: Turn with me to John chapter 4. This is our main scripture. Jesus is on his way from Jerusalem up into Galilee, which was his home area, and in order to do that, he had to go through Samaria. Samaria was a section of Palestine at the time between Jerusalem and Judea, the southern area, and the northern area of Galilee. And Samaria was was an area which was uh, inhabited by Samaritans who were basically half Jew and half Gentile and to the Jew that was a mixture that caused them to be profane and and they could have nothing to do with it well the Samaritans reacted accordingly and they didn't have anything to do with the Jews they wouldn't talk to each other it was a racial issue and and Jesus stops at this well for water and his disciples go into the city to buy food and this woman, the Samaritan woman comes out and sits and comes out to draw water and he begins this conversation with her And we've looked at it before, and what we've seen is that we're looking at from this perspective this morning that this is a woman who's going about her everyday routine. She's going out to get water because they didn't have plumbing. And she's going out to draw water, as she probably has every day of most of her life, and she may go out more than once a day. And there's a Jew sitting there who, by all intents and purposes, looks like any other. She may be able to tell that he's a teacher by the way he dresses, but she doesn't know much about him, and she just goes to get her water, and he looks up to have a conversation with her. And what's going on here is this is God in the flesh meeting with a woman that he cares for and loves very dearly. But God, because of who he is and because of who we are, can't just show up and say, here I am, see me in all my glory, because first of all, without Christ you die, because any sin or unrighteousness cannot live in his presence, she would have just died. And even as us, as Christians, we come and just appears in all of his glory, we're not going to just sit there, we're going to go flat on our faces, we're going to see this morning, because of who God is, and his glory and his majesty and his remember it's absolute power absolute holiness absolute righteousness absolute truth absolute light absolute life not a lot of it absolute. he's the source of all those things but in this encounter God's clothed in flesh and the Bible teaches us that Jesus had laid aside that glory while he came and walked, he's still God, he was still righteous, he was still true, but the glory, the majesty, the, 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 the light that the Bible talks about that's, that you can't stand in the presence of, he laid that aside, or else he couldn't have got anything done. <laughs> but here it is, God wanting to communicate with this Samaritan girl, nobody, we don't even know her name but God did. She's important to him. We're talking it from a point of view that that this is what God desires to do with us. God desires to commune with you every day, throughout your day. In fact, he desires to do it all throughout the day. But he also desires his people to come together because there's something happens when a family gets together. There's something happens when God's people come together because we are the body of Christ and each church is a portion of that body assigned a a, a function just as your toes have a function and your fingers have a function and your ears have a function. Each part of the body of Christ has a function to function together. Those cells have to function together. So we come together on Sundays and on Wednesday nights as the body of Christ, in part so that our God can come and meet with us together, not just individually. We see him say that at the end because he says, for the Father longs for such. But there's a process going on by which Jesus is revealing himself to this woman. He's bringing her to a level of awareness starts with just water, natural water. That's all she can think of. She came here conscious of what, she, where, what her need was and what she's got to take back with her, which is the natural material water. Many of us come here on Sunday mornings with our eyes on the natural needs of our life. I need a job. I need this. I need, you know, healing in my body. You know, there's a, my family's a mess. Or just, you know... Just the stuff of getting ready to come to church, you know, my hair didn't go where it was supposed to go, you know, and I couldn't figure out what clothes to wear, My, you know, you know, I just this, I couldn't get the right top, whatever it is. You know, you, you know, the issues of natural life, we come here, those that you went through to get here, they're still going on in us when we come in here, and that's where she was. And Jesus wants to bring her focus, bring her awareness up off the natural things, because there's a natural life that we all live, And he's trying to bring her eyes and her focus and her heart up to begin to look at life at a different level. And that's what he's doing here. A number of other things he's doing here. But we'll pick up. Let's just go quickly through verse 10. And Jesus answered and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. In other words, Jesus is saying, Because you don't know who you're talking to. Because you don't recognize who's here. You're not asking from Him what He could give you. You know, that's what a number of us struggle with. The Bible says you have not because you ask not, James chapter 4. Many of you in the room this morning have many have needs in your life. And you may have been praying, but you're not getting answers. And part of what we struggle with in faith is, Jesus said in Matthew, Mark eleven twenty two. we know 23 and 24, Matthew 22, He says, have faith in God. He never tells you to have faith in your faith. So there are all kinds of formulas and teachings we can have which are good to teach us what faith is, but they can very subtly get you looking at what you do. So we have a faith checklist. Have I read the right scriptures? Have I said them the right number of times? Am I doing the right number of things? Am I doing this? Am I doing that? Am I doing this? And very subtly we begin to believe that our faith is in what we do and that's not what Jesus said he said have faith in God but what worship does is worship begins to open your eyes to who this God is that you're coming to and asking to help who this God is that has sent Jesus to die for you who this God is that says come and ask me seek and you'll find knock and the door will be open you have not because you ask not and Jesus is saying to her look if you knew who you were talking to You would ask some things of me. You would ask for living water. Now he's trying to raise her eyes, her attention, to whet her appetite. And that's what God wants to do with our study. He wants to whet our appetite for the potential of what God desires to do every time we come together and meet. Every time we come together and meet. God wants something. He wants to do something for you. He wants to bless you. He wants to give himself to you. But if we don't know who it is, we're coming. I mean, we may know who God is intellectually. We may know what we're going about. But when you begin to get a revelation of who this God is, when you begin to get a revelation of what this God has done for you, it changes you. And we're going to see today a series of stories, some of them we've already begun to look at, where God does that. He comes, He wants to change somebody, He wants to raise their eyes, He wants to provide something for them or leave them and have them do something for Him, and He always starts by showing them who He is. Showing them who He is. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He has his attention, he has her attention because in verse 11 he says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well's deep, and how are you going to give me living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who dug this well for us and fed us, gave it to us to feed our sons and his livestock? And Jesus said, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. I'm not talking about natural water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. That water shall become in him a fountain of water, springing up to everlasting life. Now she says, Lord, I, now she's, getting, she's whetted her appetite. Just a little. Enough to say, oh, there's something else you're offering me. It's touched a need in her. It's touched a need in her. And she's beginning to realize she has a need for something she didn't know she had when she came up to the well. Sometimes we come to church and we think everything's fine. We don't realize that there's needs that we have, that when we come together with the Spirit of God in the place of worship begins to open our eyes and you realize, oh, there's a need that I have in my life or I'm not where I think I am in that place or whatever it is, God begins to touch you so you can see, oh, wait a minute, there's something lacking here. There's a desire that I have I didn't know that could be fulfilled. See, once you begin to know, a lot of times we don't ask because we don't think we can have. So we just begin to set our goals shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter And we kind of think, and after you've been walking with the Lord for a while and you may not see some changes that you think you need to have in your life, we begin to settle for where things are. Say, so, well, I guess this is just the way it's always going to be. And so we get into a spiritual routine just the way we get into a natural routine. You get up in the morning, brush your teeth, do you know, your normal stuff, and you know, eat your breakfast, get in your car, go to the same job, do the same work over and over again, you know, eat your same lunch, come home to the same family, do the same thing, go through, and you get up the next morning go through the same routine. We do that spiritually too. We get into a spiritual routine. And what happens is when we do that, we begin to lower our expectations of God. And God wants to whet our appetite. He wants to ignite some need in you, some desire you have, some passion you have. See, there's a need. See, the church, especially this church, but so many churches in the United States, we're so well fed. We have so much information. We've just had a trip come back from the mission field. The first time we went on the mission field to teach, I was talking to the missionary going down. He says, you have an idea. He says, the, the, the 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 person in your church that has been there six months or more in your church... Know so much more than all the pastors that are going to come to this meeting. that we have so much information, so much teaching. And yet in some ways, those people in other countries are farther ahead in us in their walk with the Lord. Because they can't just sit in church and receive, because their lives depend on applying what they hear in order to live. I haven't heard their stories yet, but I remember some of our stories. Just learning to live to where your next meal is going to come from. I'll never forget one pastor talking to me about a hurricane, a a, a, whatever level five hurricane went over their house. Now their house was sticks stuck in the ground with a thatched roof and a dirt floor. Jimmy, it had tin roof. This one had a tin roof on a pole in the middle and when the hurricane went over this tin roof began to spin and they were believing God to not get their heads cut off holding on to this pole whereas you and I get advance warnings we get chances to maybe go to our basement you know, whatever my point is they're using their what the little they know they're using it because they have to to live. We don't have to do that because we have so many other alternatives. Well, do I, do, I, do I believe God or do I go to the doctor? They don't have that choice. Do I trust God for my food or do I, do I, do I just go to Shaw's or stop and shop and pull out my debit card? We have so many other options that it's so easy to just settle in and we lower our expectation of what God can do for us and wants to do for us. Because we know we need Him generally, but we don't really rely on Him unless a crisis occurs that's beyond our debit card or our basement or our own resources to provide for. Jesus wants to show us There's something I have for you. He wants to ignite. But you know, when you meet people like that, there's a passion that they have. I remember meeting pastors that came to these conferences and they traveled sometimes two days on a bus with a, everything they had in a, in a paper bag and they didn't have the money to go back. And we said, well, you know, there's a conference coming here. We got a special speaker coming. I don't know. Let's see. I may come. Maybe I'll come Sunday night, but, you know, I'll be, you know. The Pats are on Monday, on Monday night, so I don't, you know, you know. And I've been had a hard work week. These people have a passion for God. Why? Because they've tasted something of Him, and how have they tasted it? Because they've needed Him. They know there's a need, and there was nowhere else to turn. We have those same needs. We just have so many other alternatives. We don't realize that God's the one that's really behind those alternatives. We don't realize that it's not the debit card, it's the God that provides the money to pay the debit card. Yeah. We don't realize that it's, it's not the doctor, it's the God that's behind that doctor that provided the wisdom and the understanding and the rela- revelation that the doctor could use. We don't understand that it's still the same source because they're intermediator, inter- intermediary. There's people in between <laughs> that God's using. And you may be an intermediary. I got it out. You may be one of those in-between people that God's using. God wants to raise her eyes up. I was not plan to go in this direction at all this morning, but we'll go there. <laughs> to lift her eyes up. To say, I'm here among you. I'm here with you this morning. Realize the opportunity that you have. You're here looking for, to satisfy your natural thirst, I have something to give you that will satisfy that inner thirst that you may have lost track of that you have because you don't know it's ever going to be met. That appetite has to be whetted. Before we got up here, I was just thinking, I was just, you know, the special was going on and there were pre- somebody's preparing food over here. And I'm going... Now, that can be distracting during a service because I'm trying to speak sp- sp- spiritual food and there's the odor of natural food coming from the kitchen over there. And it's because what, it, what, what does it do? It wets our appetite. Well, God wants to spiritually wet your appetite. Because that food or this water, you know, you've noticed once you've eaten it and you maybe eaten more than you should have. You say, know, I'll never eat again. Oh, well, like that. You know. But you do because you get hungry again. <laughs> that food gets absorbed in your body, gets passed through. The body separates out what it needs from what it doesn't need. And then, you know, four or five hours, six hours, you're hungry again. And you've got to go through the same process all because it doesn't, it only satisfies temporarily. But Jesus is saying, I have something for you. I have something for you that will become in you the source of that life that will be a well that you can draw on any time you need in there to satisfy your needs your emotional needs your loneliness your spiritual needs he's wetting her appetite and then she says give me some of that water now she wants it and now Jesus is going to deal with some issues he says well go call your husband now he knew and she says well I don't have a husband he said that's right notice she didn't tell him the whole truth She's trying, to, she's trying to hide from him the reality of her, the mess of her life. And she said, well, well you're right. And she said, I don't, you're I don't, not going to lie to him. See, we do this with God sometimes. We're not going to lie to him, but we just don't open everything up. Right. Well, you know, but I, you know, I, you know I, I don't have a husband. Now, what he's going to say right now is not to hurt her, it's not to damage her, and it's not to embarrass her, it's to set her free. Because he wants to give her something. So he says to her, you're right. He's going to tell her the whole truth. You're right, you don't have a husband. But you've had five. And the one you're living with now isn't your husband. So basically, you're a mess in relationships. And I know it. You have failed at five marriages. Now, just if you've you failed in marriages, don't get condemned. Let's go through it. And so she's given up on marriage. Well, I can't succeed. So this next guy, I'm not even going to get married to him. Her whole expectations have lowered of life. I wasn't planning on going this direction at all. Her whole expectation of life has come down to basically where the world is today. Why, why, why make a commitment to a man because either he's going to fail me or I'm going to fail him. So let's just live together. Let's just live together in sin. Violate God's word because I can't keep it anyway. Notice Jesus doesn't condemn her. He just says, let's face the truth. Let's face the truth. Now, this is going to become important because what he's going to say later on is God is searching for true worshipers who worship him in spirit and... And what? Ah, truth. So somehow there's a connection between being open and honest before God and true worship. So he begins to address issues in her life because he wants her to walk in truth. And she says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> you're not just a rabbi, a teacher who stopped to bring, to get water from this well. You're not, you're something there's something about you. So it's beginning to work. And then she goes into this discussion about worship. My own belief is she's just trying to change the subject because now it's getting a little uncomfortable for her. So she wants to get into a theological discussion with, you know. Well. We say that this is the place we're to worship, the Samaritans. And you Jews say it's in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, well, you worship here because you don't know the truth. We worship in Jerusalem because we know salvation is of the Jews. But then he gets to the point. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father longs for, and that's the thing we want to look at, the Father longs for such worshipers. Every time we come in here, the God who sits in heaven, the God who created the universe, the God who can do anything He wants to do, the God who spoke and the universe came into existence, He has a need, He has a desire, He has a passion, He has a longing and that's to enter into worship experience with you and me collectively. He longs for that. He longs for that. I know He lives in us and He didn't live in, in that woman. I know He lives in us because we're born again that God's Spirit is in us. But there's something beyond my own walk with Him. There's something beyond my own communion with God throughout the day or whenever I spend time with Him. There's a collective worship together there's a collective experience together that when the body comes together to seek him and to worship him we've looked at some examples of that in the Old Testament we saw and this is really one of our key scriptures of the real vision God's part of the vision God's given me here is in Exodus 19 where God has brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and that represents our being saved out of the world brought them out there and after a few months he brings them down to southern uh, uh, Arabia, southern Saudi Arabia, to Mount Sinai and calls Moses up and says, I want you to go back down and I want you to call the people out in three days. Take three days and and prepare their lives, get things cleaned up in their lives, get things straightened out and then bring them out to the foot of the mountain because I'm going to come down and I'm going to reveal myself to them so that they will not sin." I will reveal myself to them so that they'll be able to follow me and know who it is that's brought them out of Egypt. Know who it is. They're again like Jesus met with the woman. I want to reveal myself because when I reveal myself, it will change them. And the verse that's so powerful to me is Exodus 19, 17. And Moses came down to bring the people to meet with their God. That's what God wants to do every time we open the doors. I know He wants to do it with you personally. But He wants to be every time we open a service. He wants to be here to meet with you and me. Not just by faith, but by experience. We looked last time we spoke about this in Isaiah chapter 6. We saw how God called Isaiah And he called him up there. He called him into heaven. In fact, turn with me to Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, he knew who the Lord was, he'd served the Lord. But God wants to commission him into his ministry and what God does is he brings him up whether this is a vision or he's physically carried up we don't know. All we know this is he says in the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord. I saw his presence. I had an experience with the God that I've served the God I've studied the God I've learned about the God about whose scriptures I memorized as a young boy. I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim. One on each had six wings and two covered with... with, with, (laughs) Each one had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. And with two He flew. And one cried to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full with His glory. And the posts of the doors of heaven were shaken by the voice of Him who cried. That's not even God's voice. And the house was filled with smoke. And I, this is, once he saw who God was, his first reaction, he was a holy man. He was a learned man. He was an educated man. But the moment he saw who God was, he says, woe is me for I am unclean because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. Same thing And when Jesus met this woman. He immediately, when he saw who God is in his holiness, his first reaction was to realize who he was. God never does that to punish us. God does us so we see where we really are, so we can receive what He has to give us. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among an unpeople of unclean lips. An angel went over to the altar, and we'll get later on into what all that means. And she, he took a with a tone. He took a coal, a burning coal off of that that coal comes in the Old Testament it came from, a, from an altar where animals were burned 24 hours a day at about 2000 degrees Fahrenheit to incinerate them and that in the Old Testament tabernacle represented the fire of the cross the fire that Jesus went through the torture the pain that he went through the agony that he went through the intensity of it that he went through and on that cross represented the burning up of your sins and my sins they would take a coal from that altar into the outer room of the tabernacle and place it, use it to ignite another altar that was in there that they did not burn animals on. They didn't need to because it was already burned outside the camp. They put it on there and they put on an ointment on it and an aroma came up, a sweet aroma came up and that represents praise and worship. But it was ignited by a coal that came from the altar that where suffering took place to pay for their sin, in the same way this, this coal represents the passion of Christ, the dying of Christ, the agony of Christ, that authorized and allowed the cleansing of Isaiah's mouth so he could now speak to God. We're going to see as we get further in the study that in the New Testament, the church that you and I have, we have free and open access to come in. We can come in here and worship and praise anytime we want. You can pray, worship in your car. You can pray and worship wherever you are openly and freely. But the reason we can do that is because 2,000 years ago, someone paid a horrible price so that you and I have that free and open access. And Isaiah's realizing here, wait a minute, I'm a righteous man, but I can't just saunter into the, temp- into, the, into the throne room of God and say, hey, God, here I am, boy, you need me to worship you? Hey, here I am. He may have had that attitude before he got in there, but the moment he saw who God was, boom, on his face he went because he realized who he was. And the point of the message today, we've, the ones we've been talking about, is the opportunity of worship And today we're going to begin to talk about the privilege of worship. The privilege of worshiping a holy God who doesn't need anything, can do anything He wants, has given us the privilege of coming to worship Him. See, we're going to begin to talk about the attitude of our hearts because that's what it's all about. What is our attitude towards worship? And I'm talking to me as much as you... I mean, do we come kind of casually in here and say, well, you know, praise and worship's already started, but that's okay. I came here for the word, and, um, and I'll, you know, I'll sit here. Then what's our attitude towards God? Amen. What's our heart attitude towards who God is? That we can just show up when we want to show up, and I'm talking to all of us because it's not just whether you're here on time. It's attitudes we have about, well, oh, no, it's praise and worship, you know. You know, it's good. The music was good. This was good. This was good. It's not about the music. It's not even about my experience of it. It's not about whether the choir's on or the choir's off. It's not about, you know, who's, who's singing what. It's not about any of that. It's all about Him. And coming to give to Him what He... Deserves and is worthy of, absolutely. But it happens by getting a glimpse of Him. Let's go to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. See, see when you begin to get a glimpse of who God really is, it, it, we realize that... To come to God, we don't come on our terms. As you read your Bible, especially the Old Testament, we come on His terms. And we'll learn He has to invite us. He has, but He has to invite us. So the first thing about the privilege of worship is we have to come on His terms because He's God and we're not. Yeah. When I was a boy, I don't know if I ever did this, but I remember, I remember one of my brothers did this. My mother just, you know, drew a line on something. She says, you know, if you, you're going to have to do this. And he just said this, well, I'm going to hold my breath. And my mother was wise enough to say, go ahead. And he held his breath and held his breath and held his breath and held his breath. It wasn't hurting her. Because she knew ultimately <laughs> the worst that could happen is he'd pass out and he'd start breathing again. <clears throat> What he had to learn is that there was nothing he could do to make her change what she decided. And <laughs> believe me, there was nothing. <laughs> There's nothing you and I can do to change who God is. We don't come to God on our terms. This is not a negotiating conference. This is not a God says, well, what, you know, what would you like? Here's what I'd like. Let's kind of talk about it. He's God. And he's a holy, righteous God. And He's given us the privilege of not just coming and singing about Him, but entering into His actual presence. But it starts by recognizing who this God is that invites us in. And the awesome privilege that we have. The awesome privilege that we have. I mean, imagine if you got an invitation to go to the White House, regardless of your political beliefs. Or maybe it's not the White House. Maybe it's some some very important person that you admire highly. You got an invitation in the mail. It's like, wow, I got an invitation to go to the White House to meet so-and-so. You know, you'd show it to your people, you know. Would you just show up whenever? No, you'd be prepared for it. You know you, what what clothes should i wear and you know you know what you know, 's the pro- 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 protocol there was a movie that came out a few years ago about uh, about the king of England and the, and and the of course i think it was kings speech and there was talks showed that the new prime minister was going to meet the queen for the first time and he 's the prime minister he 's been elected by the people, but there was a protocol he had to go through of how to speak to her and where he could stand and when he could sit. There was a whole protocol why even though he was the elected political leader of the people, this was the Queen of England. And in order to give deference to who she is, there was a protocol to go through. Well, she's just as human as the Prime Minister. But we're talking about going into the presence of God. Exodus chapter 3. This is Moses's first encounter with God. He's been taking care of his father-in-law's sheep on the backside of the desert. Now Moses, verse 1, was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the Mount of God. This, by the way, this is the same mountain that he later, God later calls him up on. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the midst of a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. Now this isn't God's full, full glory. This is a representative of God. And God appears in different forms. Sometimes it's smoke and fire. Sometimes it's thunder and lightning. God never reveals, never appears on earth in the fullness of who He is. So He comes and reveals different aspects of Him for different purposes. So Moses sees this bush that looks like it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. Personally, I don't believe it was a hot flame. My personal belief is it was the glory of God shining out of it. And he had no other words to describe it. But because it, it's not being consumed, it's an angel of God there represent bringing God's presence because he wants to get Moses' attention because he's going to commission him to go back to the place he ran away from. And to lead the people out that the last time he tried to lead them, they were going to have him arrested. And God's calling him to go back, and God wants to Im- Im- get him, first of all, aware of who this God is that's calling him to go back. So God appears to him in a limited form. But here's what I want you to see out of that. Verse 3 Moses said, I'll now turn aside and see this great sight, for this bush that does not burn. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him from the midst of the bush. Notice he waited to see what God appears in a form and waits to see what response Moses is going to have. The implication here is if Moses says, oh, wow, what a sight. That's cool. I can't wait to go tell my father-in-law what I just saw today and went on that God would not have spoken to him. Moses sees something that's different that reflects the glory of God and now Moses has a choice of what he's going to do. Just like the children of Israel had a choice when God says, bring them around the foot of the mountain because I want to come down and appear before them. And they saw the preliminaries of that and said, whoa, that's too much for us. Will you go? We're going back to camp. You go talk to him. We're going to see later on. They walked away from God's opportunity. Moses has an opportunity here. It's up to him, now what happens? And so when he says, let's turn aside and see what this is, when God saw that Moses responded to the invitation, when God saw that Moses responded to the invitation, God called to him from the midst of the bush. And said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, and here's what I want you to see. Do not draw near to this place. Take your sandals off of your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. Now he may have walked by the other day before. He may have still had some of the pebbles from that same ground in the bottom of his sandals. Ever get a pebble in your sandal and you're just trying to get rid of it? I I mean, I don't know. The point is, what made this ground holy was not the pebbles or the sand or the rocks that were there. It was that God's presence was now there. And God is saying to him, you're here, don't get too close. But recognize, first of all, that this place is now a holy place. And therefore, you should take off your sandals. Now, why take off a sandals? It can't be because it's going to get dirt on the dirt, because <laughs> there was already dirt. Why take off your sandals? Well, we, we've seen this when we've looked later on when Moses, God is instructing Moses about building an altar. And he said, look, you, you know, you can build it out of dirt, Or you can make it out of rocks, but if you make it out of rocks, you can't cut the rocks in any way, because the moment you put a cutting tool to it, you profane the rock. Why? uh, An altar made out of dirt was fine to make, because who made the dirt? God did. An altar made out of rocks was fine, because who made the rocks? God did but the moment man took a cutting tool and began to change the form of that rock now man had added to what God had created and man joined in this creation and therefore was taking partial credit well who made his sandals either he did or someone else did but who made his feet God did Now listen to me. So God's saying here that because this is holy ground, the only thing that can touch it is something I've made. The only thing that can touch holy ground that's holy because I'm here is something I've made. I made your feet so they can touch this ground. You made your sandals. Take them off. Which means the only thing we can bring to God into His presence that's acceptable to Him are things He's made. I can't bring my accomplishments to Him. I say, Lord, look, you know, I've, you know, I've been a faithful. I've done, this, I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. Therefore, I've come to worship you. He does, he, you've been able to do that because He enabled you. to me one of the most verses I go over almost every day is in Philippians 3 where Paul goes through his pedigree he goes through his resume but, you know I'm in a Hebrew of the Hebrews I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees I, you know, out of zeal I, you know, I did everything out of zeal I did it under the law I was perfect I did everything I was supposed to do but I count it as refuge I count it as dirty trash so that I may know him And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, that I may be conformed to his death. That I may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that I've received by faith in what Christ has done. Take your sandals off because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. We can't take for granted the privilege and the opportunity that we have to enter into the presence of God. Let's go now to Joshua chapter 5. Children of Israel have come out of Egypt now. They've, for, first generation has died off. Moses has died off. They're preparing to come in now, the second generation. They're right up to the point now of entering in. They've crossed the Jordan River supernaturally, and they've got a problem. The problem is the first city they face is Jericho. And the Bible says it's tightly shut up. Archaeologists tell us that the walls of Jericho were so thick that they used to conduct chariot races on the top of the wall. And they're looking at this problem. What are we going to do? And so Joshua goes out to meditate. We're going to look at verse 13. It came to pass that while Joshua that when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. This is an angel. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us, or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No, but as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And this is God coming as an angel, through an angel to be a, a military leader. No, I come as a commander of the army of the Lord. I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to this servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Does that mean that we need to leave our shoes outside the church when we come in? No. No. But it does mean that we need to leave... It, it's the attitude of reverence. Amen. It's the attitude of reverence. What if God did ask us to do that? Would you be willing? It's the attitude of reverence. Reverencing this place. Now this place is places, just concrete and steel and plastic and other things. But so was the dirt that was around, was here, and the dirt that was around that bush. What made it holy, what changed it, that that natural material, what changed it into a holy place was the presence of a holy God. And just the angel of the Lord said, because I'm here as his representative, this is a holy place. Take your sandals off your feet. Let's look at another one. Let's go into the New Testament. Let's go over to Acts chapter 9. And there are others we could use. Here again is a man... This is Paul. We were just talking about him. Here again is a man who was determined to destroy the church. He believed that his purpose was to wipe out this heresy that was beginning to to destroy Judaism, the old foundations, the things under the law that he'd been taught. With all of his passion and his heart, he was going about to destroy it. And he's on his way to Damascus. He has letters from from the chief priests authorizing him to arrest and bring back to Jerusalem for punishment every Christian he can find to destroy what was known then as the way. He's on his way. But God has a different purpose for his life. But what does God do? Does God send him a letter, an email? (laughs) Does God speak to him in the night? He could have done it that way. But God wants to get his attention. So let's read, starting in verse 1. And Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if found any who were of the way, that's Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Gira- Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And he fell on the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? He doesn't know who he is. He understands the scriptures that says the Messiah is coming. And the only issue he has with this new sect, the only issue he has with this way, with Christians, is he, they believe that the one who died for them was the Messiah, and Paul doesn't believe that. Because he believes the Messiah hasn't come yet. That's where the, 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 the practicing Jews are today the only thing we disagree with on is whether the Messiah has come and who he is. But a real devout Jew who believes in the scriptures will believe most of what you and I believe, certainly out of the Old Testament. Paul was passionate for it. So what happened? A bright light fall comes down. And what's Paul's reaction? He falls on the ground and cries out, Who are you? He didn't know who he was. The woman at the well didn't know who he was. Moses at the bush didn't know who he was. Joshua didn't know who that commander was until there was a revelation that God had come down to visit with him that moment. And the words that he heard was, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Wow, what must have gone through Saul. His whole life was turned upside down with with just several words. Everything he'd been committed to and dedicated to do, he now realized was wrong. In one moment's revelation of who this Jesus really is. And Paul had the integrity and the honesty to accept that revelation. Instead of arguing and having to be right, he yielded to the truth of who Jesus is. Remember, true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. And of course, he's led into Damascus and Through a supernatural means, his eyes are then opened, and God, Jesus begins to instruct him. What are we looking at? It's an invitation. You have it every day you get up. You have it throughout your day. But we have an invitation every time we gather together to realize that when we walk in that door, the God of all creation the God who created the universe with his words, the God who is holy and righteous and lives in majesty, the same God that Isaiah saw, the same God that visited Moses on a number of occasions, the same God that through the angel visited Joshua, the same God that spoke through Jesus to Paul on the road to Damascus, the same God, the same God who wanted to meet with his people from Mount Sinai, the same God who will learn establish his whole tabernacle so he could just dwell in part with his people the same God is here every day is here every Sunday is here every Wednesday night waiting for you and me to come he's not just waiting we see in John he's longing he longs for you He longs for me he longs for us to come and be with him why did he take his own son submit him to the humiliation of wearing human flesh to submitting to the further humiliation of being beaten and spit upon and laughed at and mocked and whipped by those Roman soldiers and then submit him to the ultimate humiliation of being hanged naked on a cross to die the most hideous death that man's yet come up with. Why would he do that? Because he longs for you and me to be able to come unhindered, unrestrained, just as we are. And we just show up in church because it's our obligation. Why? Because we haven't seen who it is that longs to meet with us here. But I believe we're going to. Let's pray. Father, there's so much to take in in what we've heard this morning. So much to take in. But I believe that you're wetting our appetite. As Jesus did with the woman at the well as you have with so many others, as you tried to do with the children of Israel, wetting our appetite, that we would recognize the need down inside of us for you. There's so many things in our life that we believe we need. Some of us know we need a job today. Some of us know we need healing in our body. Some of us know we need restoration in our families. We need all kinds of things. But we don't realize that the ultimate need we have that ultimately will satisfy only is your presence. But you're drawing us. You're wooing us. You're wetting our appetite. So I pray this morning for all of us today, me included, that the Holy Spirit would take the words that we've heard, not just with our ears, but down in our hearts. We begin to talk to us when we get up in the morning We begin to remind us that you're there longing for us throughout the day and in those moments when we think of you to take that moment to just speak to you and say thank you Lord I love you Lord whatever it may be that you prompt us to do for this process we trust you for us Jehoshaphat of old we've never been in this place before we really don't know what to do But our eyes are on you. In Jesus' name, amen.